0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Robert Whitaker has written some of the most dystopian, disturbing, and fascinating stories of evil unleashed that I've ever read. Unfortunately, he's not a fiction writer. Instead, he reports on the psychiatric industry. And in his 2010 book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, which won the Investigative Reporters and Editors 2010 Book Award, Whitaker showed how the story told by the American Psychiatric Association, you know, the one that mental illnesses are caused by known deadly chemical imbalances in the brain and modern wonder drugs are safe and effective in treating those illnesses, that that was a deadly lie. And instead, we find an epidemic of mental illness erupting just as the drugs that are supposed to treat these conditions become widely prescribed. And Whitaker argues that the only reasonable answer, based on correlation, known mechanisms of action, and clinical data, is that the drugs themselves are destabilizing our brains and creating the very imbalances they purport to address. His latest book, Psychiatry Under the Influence, which was co-written with Lisa Cosgrove, puts the psychiatric greed and fraud in a framework of institutional corruption. In other words, rather than just pointing their fingers at bad apples, they indict the entire barrel. I heard Robert speak in November 2015 at a Wellness Forum health conference and was just struck by the clarity, integrity, and importance of his message. With up to one-third of all Americans medicated for mental illness in any given year, this is a topic that is of utmost importance to all of us. And even if you yourself don't suffer from what the psychiatric industry calls a mental illness, even if there's no one in your family or no one you know, you know what, there are mass shootings going on on a regular basis and gun control is not on the table. And so this is an especially crucial message when our politicians and media want to address the problem of public violence through greater access to psych meds. I believe this interview, if you listen to it carefully and share it, will save lives. And so, without further ado, Robert Whitaker, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Ah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been reading your, uh, your book, The Anatomy of an Epidemic, with my son, who's 16. And he told me to ask you, like, it's like a dystopian teen fiction novel. He really wants to know how it's going to end. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: Good so,
0: one, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that... It, um, you know, your, your work in kind of uncovering the, the hidden underbelly of how studies are, are done in, in medical practice and turned into practice guidelines or turned into treatments, um, it's, it's quite chilling. And I, um, first, I'd love to, to have you just describe kind of, you know, how you got into this field of study in the first place. How did you start sleuthing around what's going on in psychiatry?
1: Sure, it was all very accidental. So I'd been a a newspaper journalist for a long time, uh, covering medicine back all the way to the 1980s. And then in 1998, um, I was doing a series for the Boston Globe, co-writing a series for the Boston Globe that was just looking at abuses of psychiatric patients in research settings. And and I had a completely conventional understanding of psychiatry at that time. I thought we were discovering, I thought psychiatry had discovered the biological causes of these disorders that they were due to chemical imbalances in the brain. And we had drugs that fixed those chemical imbalances and we were making all this great progress. So completely conventional understanding. And in that series, we actually, one of the things we looked at were studies in which uh, antipsychotic medications had been withdrawn from schizophrenia patients in in studies. And we said, well, that's unethical. You would never withdraw insulin from a diabetic, so why would you withdraw an antipsychotic from... Someone diagnosed with schizophrenia. Anyway, what happened at that time, though, was uh, while I was doing that research, I came upon a couple of studies that, that belied what I knew to be true. And one was that um, the World Health Organization had twice compared outcomes for schizophrenia patients in, in, two, in three poor countries, India, Colombia, and Nigeria, with longer-term outcomes in the U.S. and rich countries. And each time they found that the outcomes were much better in the poor countries. And I thought, well, why would that be? And then when I looked at the studies, they noted that in the poor countries they use the antipsychotics very differently. They use them short term and not long term. And now this quite surprised me because I thought the medications were so, supposed to be so essential to long term care. So that was the beginning of my beginning to question. And then second, uh, in that same when I was doing that same research, I found studies uh, a study done by the by the Harvard University which reported that outcomes for schizophrenia patients today were no better than they had been in 1900, uh, longer-term outcomes. So that belied that story of progress. So this began, <clears throat> began my questioning of what I, what, what I thought I knew to be true. And then into, also going back to that Boston Globe series, one of the things uh, we wrote about was how when the new atypical antipsychotics were brought to market, these are drugs like Zyprexa and Risperdal and Seroquel, we wrote about how in the scientific literature you could read about how safe and effective these drugs were but then I used a Freedom of Information request to get the reviews of the uh, studies done by the Food and Drug Administration and there the reviews told of of people who had died in the trials of how the drugs weren't any more effective than the, the older drugs and so all of a sudden there was this big gap between what the scientific literature was saying in other words, the academic psychiatrists being paid by the pharmaceutical companies to run those trials, what they were reporting in the medical literature, and what the FDA's review of those same trials was, and it was just such a big gap. And that's where I really began looking at how the influence of pharmaceutical money and the influence of psychiatry's own guild interests was leading, in essence, to uh, leading, in essence, for the American Psychiatric Association and academic psychiatrists to be telling a story to us about what was known about psychiatric um, ailments, you know, what is the cause, and what the drugs do, and how safe and effective they are, and, and start looking at how the story that they tell us, and the story even that isn't sometimes in the medical literature, is actually belied when you get into the, um, you know, what, the, what the studies are really showing. Right. So, a- after reading uh, Anatomy
0: of an epidemic I, um, I, I walked around with the zeal of the new convert and tried to like tell everybody <laughs> how right. terrible these drugs were and, and I was I was met mostly by by two responses, one is everybody knew of someone who was on a med and said it helped them, or they themselves said, you know, I, could, I, I the the um, you know, the antidepressants I was taking helped me, or I have a cousin who's psychotic, and if he gets off his meds, it's terrible. And the other was a sort of politically correct knee jerk that I was somehow saying that these weren't real illnesses because the, the way the pharmaceutical industry has framed it, these are, these are brain illnesses due to chemical imbalances and it's therefore it's nobody's fault. And the fact that the drugs exist kind of you know, symbolize the fact that it's not anybody's fault and there shouldn't be any stigma. Um, right. how, how, how do you how do you talk Responding. to people w- w- when you hear those things?
1: Yeah, well, let's start with the the disease model that these are diseases of the brain and that they're due to chemical imbalances. Well, now you want to see is is has scientific research really validated that claim that w- that we, there's some known pathologies behind these disorders or that the drugs fix chemical imbalances? And what you find is that the whole chemical imbalance story arose. When researchers back in the 60s began to understand how the drugs act on the brain. And so, for example, that SSRIs block the normal reuptake of serotonin from the synaptic cleft and the, that gap between neurons. So, since the drugs up serotonergic activity, the hypothesis was well, maybe depression is due to too little serotonin. And that's where the chemical imbalance theory of mental disorders came from from understanding how the drugs act on the brain and not from investigations or discoveries made about people so diagnosed and then they began investigating that in the 1970s and by 1983 you can find that the NIMH was saying hey we're not finding that low serotonin is a problem in people diagnosed with depression before they go on these drugs we're not finding abnormalities in the serotonergic system and, you know, the, you know, Prozac comes to market in 1988. and We hear more and more about how the new SSRIs, you know, fix a low serotonin problem and that's behind depression. But the research never showed that to be true. And, and say, in 1998, the American Psychiatric Association textbook actually says that, you know, this is where the hypothesis came from. We didn't find it to be so. And it was really a pretty lame hypothesis from the beginning because there's no reason to think that um, a pathol you know, if you're using a drug... That has a certain mechanism of action, that the pathology is the opposite of that mechanism of action. But so, even while science was not showing the chemical imbalance theory to be true, and even as research was not identifying the pathology of mental disorders, what was the story told to us by the American Psychiatric Association, by the drug industry, and really by academic psychiatrists? Well, what they told us is that science was showing that these drugs, these disorders were due to chemical imbalances. In other words this is the problem that you're running into is there's been a, our society has organized itself around a false story it's a story that has served commercial purposes but it's really quite easy if you dig into the research to show that it's just not true and now maybe some of your listeners are going now oh this is crazy this is the same thing that you know when you said this people responded well, the chemical imbalance theory has fallen so f- it's fallen apart totally. So we have Tom Insel, the former director of the NIMH, saying, "You know, that's an outdated model; didn't turn out to be true." We have Kenneth Kendler, co-editor in chief of Psychological Medicine, who spent years investigating chemical imbalances, saying this: "We have hunted for big, big neurochemical explanations for mental disorders and have not found them." And we have Ronald Pies, who's the former editor in chief of Psychiatric Times, even writing saying. The, 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 the story of chemical imbalance was always a kind of urban myth, never a theory seriously proposed by well-informed psychiatrists. So think about this. You begin saying this, you know, you know, questioning this, this story out there, and people say to you, come on, we know that these are diseases of the brain, and we know that it's nobody's fault, and, and it reduces stigma. And what does the science really show? A, we don't know the pathology of these disorders. B, the drugs, in fact, induce chemical imbalances, but people do not have any known pathology beforehand. In other words, we don't know what causes these disorders. I mean, obviously, there can be psychological things that can cause depression and anxiety, but we don't, there's been no information, discoveries, of the type that is usually used, usually seen as validating or proving that something is a brain disease. It's, it's just a marketing story at this point. And as far as reducing stigma, the, the irony is all the surveys show that the more the public becomes convinced these are brain diseases um, and chemical imbalances, the stigma increases. Hmm. Because what happens is you, you now begin to say the public says, "Look at that person has it has a disordered brain, and they can't do anything about it," and that actually makes us more afraid of that person. So, but and again, what <clears throat> what the proponents of this disease model have said is it reduces stigma; it's nobody's fault, et cetera. And uh, But my point is that's a marketing slogan. It's not a, that's not even shown in science. So that's the first half of it. The second half, when people say anecdotally, hey, I know someone that's been very helped by this or I've been helped by this, you know, that's true. There are many people who are, who are helped by the drugs. But when we say, are the drugs effective over the long term, what you're really asking is this. Com- compared to what is the natural course of whatever the disorder might be, depression, anxiety, psychosis, etc. Does long-term use of the drugs improve outcomes in the aggregate over a longer period of time or not? And what you see quite clearly in the research is that the medications increase the likelihood that a a, a, a psychiatric disorder will run a chronic course, in other words, meaning that the person who's depressed today will still be suffering from depression 10 years later, or the person suffering from psychosis will still be suffering from psychosis 10 years later. It's higher in the medicated groups. And in addition to that, sort of increased chronicity of the very symptom you're trying to treat you'll see on the whole increased rates of functional impairment increased rates of disability increased physical problems that sort of thing in the medicated group so just to finish this up let's imagine that the natural course of depression and this is really pretty true that 80 percent of people who come down with a depressive episode will be better within a year in other words the depression will be will have lifted now, if you have a drug treatment in which 50% of the people are better within a year, you're going to have a lot of people saying, "Look, the drugs help me. I'm doing great." But actually, the recovery rate is now much less than it was before, and that's a lot about what we're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. So I have to say that um, you know, if you if you like hooked me up to a stress test while I was reading the book, probably the Ronald Pies quote on page 59 would have spiked at the highest. Right. Which says, <laughs> Who's you know this it's is like remarkable, the, right? the lady protests too much. Me thinks. He says, "I am not one who easily loses his temper," <laughs> but right. he gets upset when someone says, "Well, psychiatrists tell us that it's a chemical imbalance theory." When I, you know, it's it's the audacity of that sort of claim is 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 just yeah. No, the, this is
1: a, you are know, quoting from this last last book I co-wrote with Lisa Cosgrove, "Psychiatry and Influence." It just shows the incredible. I don't even know what the Put it. It's, of course, it's cognitive dissonance on Pi's part, but it's also so disingenuous. Obviously, psychiatry has been telling people for for decades they had chemical imbalances, and to pretend that the profession never told this when he, when it's easy to show where the presidents of the association told this to the public. I mean, it's just really remarkable. But I, do, I think it does show how psychiatry now is in a bind because you're not supposed to lie to people. You're not supposed to tell your patients they have some known biological problem when the research hadn't shown that to be true. And so given that, you know, moral, you know, failing in essence, um, and, and since the chemical imbalance story has fallen so completely apart scientifically, what is psychiatry trying to do now? Well, we never lied to our patients. But in order to do that, you have to have these extraordinarily ridiculous comments like Pi saying that they never said it.
0: Yeah, boy, I, I just wish there was medication that could help them. <laughs>
1: yes, well, I'm not sure what we would call it. What's the truth-telling serum or something? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure.
0: So let's say, and I'm, uh, I'm really enjoying psychiatry under the influence um, it's, it's in a sense, it's, it's scarier than Anatomy of an Epidemic because you frame it under this isn't bad people. This is, a, you know, it's not a bad apples. It's a bad barrel in which right. – and, and, and I found myself thinking if I had been one of those marketing executives of a drug company or if I had been a PR firm hired to ghostwrite scientific papers, that I probably would have done the same things those people did. And you know, even to the point where you're you're suppressing uh, adolescent suicide, like it was. It seemed like such a slippery slope that I I really, you know, I read I read Anatomy of an Epidemic, feeling superior to all these a holes, but I read Psychiatry Under the Influence, kind of humbled by, you know, the things that I might have done myself, just like one step after another on a on a kind of a road to, uh, to the a banality of evil.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's, I mean, first of all, what, in an anatomy of an epidemic, you know, I really focus on long-term outcomes. And, and there is actually saying, saying, well, how easy it is to be uh, unaware of these long-term outcomes because you don't see it in the, and you don't see these big aggregate outcomes in your clinical practice and that sort of thing. And the betrayal there was was really limited to the fact that the psychiatric establishment, every time it got one of these studies showing better outcomes for the long-term over the long term for the unmedicated patients they basically didn't publicize that so there is that betrayal but with an psychiatry and the influence it's basically like this um, it, the corruption is so thorough I mean it's at every every step of every step of the way you find that you know the the story about the Um, the disease model and that these are diseases of the brain. You find that that and that science supports that story. You find that's not true. Then you find that the construction of the DSM-3 and this whole disease model was so arbitrary. And um, and then basically and then once we get DSM-3 in 1980 you can see the money going to people to expand the boundaries to increase the market for drugs. And you can see new drugs coming in, and you can see that the story told to the public about their safety and efficacy is absolutely out of sync with the, with the data sent to the FDA. Then you can see the clinical practice guidelines are meant to support this commercial enterprise and so forth and so on. So it's so pervasive in, in which the public is, is betrayed in, in all these steps in terms of what we expect of a medical specialty. But now let's go to your point. You have to ask yourself, well, what would I have done? And what you realize um, is that psychiatry operates something like a tribe. In other words, it, it forms a certain belief system that everybody's supposed to adhere to. And even forms like, okay, and this is what we're going to tell the public. And somehow you convince yourself it's good to tell the public this. And within pharmaceutical companies, you know, you somehow convince yourself that, oh, you know, you're bringing good, you know, important new drugs to market. And then if you're the PR firm, you're saying you're helping publicize this. And so what you do see here is that these, you know, these different organizations, they form a belief system that is conducive to their financial interests. And then once that happens, people make sure their beliefs um, are sort of in sync with that commercial interest, regardless of what the science says. And I think what's... There's many things so revealing about this. One is that this disease model we have of psychiatric disorders and how we've organized ourselves around this disease model, we think it's a scientific thing, but in fact it's just a commercial story. Now, when we switch to modern capitalism, it's pretty easy to see how industries create stories for us, and then we organize ourselves around those those stories. So the psychiatric story fits within that um, commercial uh, sort of corporate environment we've all existed in in the last thirty years. And mm-hmm. next thing you know, I think, and then that, then the question becomes: A, yeah, you can see it's not just the a holes as you said, but it's it's this bad barrel problem where good pe- even good people within that barrel can can lose sight of you know what they should be doing. And then we have to say, well, what do we as a society do to clean up that bad barrel? And that's a really tough question.
0: So let's, let's uh, dive a little bit into the, the different elements. So you have the, uh, the DSMs, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals. You have the study, to, you know, the developments of the drugs, the studies to prove their efficacy. You have the, the expansion of disease, the clinical guidelines. Let's, and it all starts with the DSMs. And help, just from a very broad perspective, help us understand why is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual important?
1: Uh, yeah, everything starts with the DSM, because the DSM becomes the manual that guides societal thinking about this this uh, you know part of our lives, this psychiatric part of our lives, and we entrust in the medical specialty to you know to set the, to one to tell us what is the problem, why are you suffering from depression, why are you suffering from mania, why are you suffering from psychosis, so their very conception that under, you know, that, that is, is the support or the underlies uh, the manual is going to be so important. And in, so in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association published the third edition of its uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And when it does so, it, recon- <coughs> it reconceives of what um, medical and um, psychiatric disorders are before we have a lot of psychological even freudian explanations saying that are you know responsible for depression anxiety etc but now the american psychiatric association says in dsm3 no these are diseases of the brain now in fact they hadn't found that to be so but this is the new conception that is presented in dsm3 and they say if you have these symptoms of a disease like say de- depression you're not sleeping enough or uh, you're not eating, et cetera. Those aren't symptoms of the psychological state you're in, but those are symptoms of a disease. So A, it gives you the conception. Two, the manual describes what is normal and what is not normal. It describes the boundary lines of disease, so to speak. And what they did in dsm three, they made these boundary lines as big as possible, and there's something like 290 disorders. I, I forget. But, and the idea is with these boundaries, is there going to be big enough to provide a diagnosis to anyone who comes into their office with whatever complaint and then as, since they're conceptualized as diseases, insurance companies will reimburse for them. So the DSM establishes the, the, um, uh, the conception of the disorders. And then once you have the conception, it's really going to drive the treatment because if you conceive of them as diseases, well, what's going to be a frontline treatment? It's going to be a drug that can reduce the symptoms of of that disease. And effectiveness is not going to be looked at as are you working, are you enjoying life, or any of the things that may be, uh, you know, your functionality. Effectiveness of the drug now is going to be just does it in some ways diminish the symptoms of the disease, sleeping, eating, that sort of thing. A little bit better than placebo. So my point is, the DSM is, is what tells us as a society how to think about mental disorders. And in that conception, it tells us how, how are we going to organize, organize ourselves to treat those disorders. And DSM-3 in the disease model gave us, uh, gave us the idea that these are diseases, drugs should be the first-line treatments, and they also gave us diagnoses that... Um, you know, extended to a wide part of, uh, you know, big part of the population, such that now, you know, they say that 25 30% of the population is, quote, ill each year. So it changes how we as a society think about psych- psychiatric problems, about normal life, about the behavior of kids. It's a really profound thing.
0: Now, the DSM and any, any uh, diagnostic manual has to be a little bit reductionist. Right, and we we accept that the cost of that reductionism, of taking someone's whole complex life and reducing it to these symptoms, is there's a benefit there that it's easier to diagnose and we can agree upon diagnosis and we can agree upon, and and that different practitioners using the same manual get the same results. So how did the DSM-3 do in terms of validity and reliability?
1: Yeah, this is really important. So for any diagnostic manual to be useful in medicine, it needs two qualities. It needs to be reliable and it needs to be valid. Now, reliability means that if I'm a patient and I go to one doctor, I'll get a a diagnosis, and then I go to a different doctor with the same symptoms, I'll get the same diagnosis, okay? And that shows that, okay, now the manual allows us to group people of like problems into these, these categories. And then validity means that the category is real. In other words, if you say, uh, let's just use the very category we think is the realist, and that's schizophrenia. And you, you say, okay, there's a real discrete disorder called schizophrenia, and it has this sort of long-term outcome. Here's the biology, and this is why everybody in that category needs to be treated in the same way. But if we really put these two questions, the DSM, was it, is it a reliable manual? And you'll find that it isn't you'll find that there's all sorts of uh, differences between if you go with the same symptoms to one psychiatrist to another in terms of which diagnosis you get. And, of course, there's many people will talk about how their diagnosis changes constantly, depending on who they see. So the DSM does not meet this standard of reliability. And as, as for validity, going back to the dsm 3 in 1980, those were con- the, 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 the diagnoses in that manual were considered hypotheses, by the American Psychiatric Association, and the hope was that research would then validate these hypotheses, meaning they would find the pathology, they would find a characteristic coerce, they would find genetic uh, markers or, and genetic links. And in 2009 or 10, there was a round table of experts in the DSM, psychiatrists, and they asked this question: Have we validated the disorders in?" the dsm and they said no we don't have that information and then let's go back to our example of schizophrenia what we really know now is there's no such discrete thing as schizophrenia and even the biological people will say really what we may have is a group of schizophrenias quote and there may be many different causes of 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 what we call schizophrenia many very distinct disorders within that and that's the problem if you have a diagnostic manual that's saying oh think of everything as when you have this certain sort of constellation of symptoms of schizophrenia as a discrete illness when, in fact, you might have five, six, many different causes of whatever the person is experiencing, that's going to be a diagnostic manual that blinds you to what is happening to your patients and blinds you to the fact that maybe rather than one one size treatment fits all, you need treatments of many, many different kinds and sort of patient-centered treatments, etc. So if you have a manual that is neither reliable nor valid, that manual, in fact, rather than lead to uh, insight into uh, what's going on with patients and rather than lead to good treatment, it's very likely going to lead to delusions about what's going on to people and actually uh, to recommendations of treatment that often so not right for that individual person.
0: So, so you would expect, if, if the manual is neither reliable nor valid, that you did trials of the drug's that were're supposed to cure these discrete or, or treat the symptoms or ameliorate or remit these, these discrete uh, diseases, that the results would be terrible. And but we find out that in drug trials and reported drug trials that make it you know both to uh, to psychiatric journals and to mainstream media that these SSRIs, the atypicals, the anti that all this stuff like is doing really great. And I'd like you to talk about, just some of, some of the ways in which studies are, are pimped, I can't think of another word, to, to make it seem like these, these uh, chemicals that are, you know, these pills are good for us when, in fact, there's very little evidence to that effect.
1: So let's go back to, to, to Prozac. It, it gets it gets introduced in 1988 and if you look at what was told to the public we hear about how it's so much safer and effective than the, than the old drugs we hear about how it fixes a chemical imbalance in the brain and then we also hear that in fact it can maybe make people feel better than well so this is just a miracle drug a breakthrough drug for depression now you go to the actual studies that were submitted to the FDA and one of the first thing that you find that is so surprising is that fluoxetine wasn't actually tested as a standalone agent for depression. And the reason for this is that early on in the trials, uh, many people treated with fluoxetine became manic or they became agitated. They, had, they suffered from something called akathisia. So the trials were amended so that people who experienced that effect on fluoxetine could be given a benzodiazepine. So in the studies, of Prozac, what you're really seeing is a combination of benzos, of a benzodiazepine plus Prozac as a treatment for depression compared to placebo. Now what were the results? Well, if you look at the trials, many of the trials failed to find that Prozac was any better than placebo. And then if you look at all the data that was sent to the FDA, you pool all that data and you compare it to placebo collectively and you find that the reduction in symptoms Uh, on, on Prozac as compared to placebo, it's basically exactly the same. Now, what happened was there was one or two studies in which Prozac was better, and that's why the drug got approved. But you look at all the data, the reduction in symptoms on the Hamilton scale was only one point different between the two groups, which is absolutely clinically meaningless. So you began this question saying that, Listen, if the thing's not valid, you wouldn't expect the drugs to be very effective because people might have a lot of different things going on. And that's precisely what the Prozac trials found. And you see that with the other SSRI trials uh, as well. Normally, in a trial, like, let's go back to an antibiotic trial. If you have an antibiotic that's effective against a bacteria, you will see a dramatic difference between those with that, you know, who, so you begin with the people who have a bacterial infection. Those given the antibiotic are going to do so much better than those, if the antibiotic is effective, than those in placebo, because that's a discrete disorder and it's going to be a marked difference. Here we did not see that with the SSRIs at all. Okay? So that actually reflects the fact that what we're calling depression, and that'll be as many different things, and we don't have a specific treatment for it, and that maybe SSRIs are good for some small group of people. But for the, for the vast majority of people with depression, they're really no better than placebo. Even over the short term and over the long term, in fact, I think there's plenty of evidence that they increase the chronicity of the disorder. And by the way, just to finish this up, when they've tested SSRIs in, quote, real-world populations, because in industry-funded trials you're, you're testing them in a very select group of patients, the results were horrible. In, in, the, in the first NIMH study of this, this sort, only 26% of real-world patients even responded to an, to an FSRI antidepressant, meaning they had some reduction of symptoms. And at the end of one year, only 6% of the patients initially treated were, were in remission, meaning that the depression had gone away. So that's, an, that's, an, that's a story of a drug class that is very ineffective in real-world populations. Now let's move on to the atypicals for the story about how studies are biased by design to make um, the study drug look better. So take the study, take the trials of Risperdal. How were they conducted? One, there was no placebo group actually in those studies. What they did is they took people who were somewhat stabilized, you know, doing okay on antipsychotics, and they randomized them to a group that was, a, one group was abruptly withdrawn from the medication, the other group was was just then either randomized to an old drug or randomized to one of the new drugs. And the group that was abruptly withdrawn and kept off the medication becomes your placebo group. Now, the problem with that is, is that we know that abrupt withdrawal actually often leads um, to serious symptoms. a sort of a serious relapse state. And that's because uh, your brain has adapted to the presence of the drug. So we're going to have a placebo group a group labeled placebo that isn't true placebo but in fact a drug withdrawal group and that group can be expected to do horribly. Now how about the comparison between the new drug uh, say Risperdal versus the old drug Halval. Well what they did in the Risperdal trials is they they, uh, randomized people to different types of dosages one higher one medium one low which gave them three different groups and they compared that to a group of patients randomized to you know, put on Haldol at very high doses. Now, the reason they wanted to use a high dose of Haldol is because they knew that when they compared a low dose of risperdal to a high dose of Haldol, that there would be a lot more adverse events in the high dose of Haldol. And they could say, look, at our drug is so much safer. It has, um, you know, it causes so many fewer problems than Haldol, but that's not a characteristic of the drug. That's, 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 that's a finding that results from how you've designed the study. Now, when the FDA, for example, so we heard in the scientific literature how Risperdal was a breakthrough drug, so much better than Haldol and Thorazine. Well, what did the FDA said, say when they reviewed the data? They said, listen, these trials are biased by design. There's no evidence that uh, your new drug is any better than the old drug. And, in fact, we should expect all sorts of adverse effects of a different sort since the drug has a bit of a different mechanism of action to, to, to pop up. So the very claim that was being made to the public of a breakthrough medication and being made in the scientific literature, when you actually get to the FDA review, they're saying this this is just a story that results from biased study design meant to make the new drug look better. So that's a very long-winded answer to go back to your question about... Well, if if these disorders aren't validated and you might have people with a lot of different problems in one category, wouldn't you expect the drugs to not do so well? And, in fact, that's what you find in the data that was submitted to the FDA. You actually, by the way, don't find those new atypicals much more effective than the drug-withdrawn group. That's a surprise. And in the trials of Zyprexa, the FDA actually said the, the phase three trial showed no um, – Provided no meaningful efficacy data, and they, proved, they they approved Zyprexa based on a phase two a smaller phase two study so that 's a long winded answer, but um, in fact, this is one of the reasons that it may be so hard for companies now to bring new drugs to market because you have lumped together people with problems undoubtedly of many different types.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and, and you may think it's a long-winded answer, but it really barely scratches the surface of the Manual of Dirty Tricks.
1: Yeah, it, it, you know, again now, if we look at that, why do they design trials this way? Well, the pharmaceutical companies design trials this way because they're trying to have trial data that helps their new drug be a success in the marketplace. Then you have to ask, well, why did the academic psychiatrists agree to bias designs like this? And why did they sign their names on studies that reported, you know, results without mentioning the biased designs? And that's another question, but basically what what happened as this went on is that academic psychiatry got captured by the pharmaceutical industry, and pharmaceutical industry began paying academic psychiatrists huge amounts of money to be their consultants, speakers, and advisors. And once that happened, that really influenced um how they looked the other way when they were uh you know investigators on 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 studies that had biased trial designs and when they reported the outcomes they hid adverse events so for example, in the atypicals, there actually were a lot of deaths i actually when I was writing that series for the Boston Globe, I looked into this. I think it was roughly one in every hundred and thirty five people who entered those studies died and yet When you look at the reports in the medical literature, there's no reports of any deaths.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, I had a, a a career in marketing, and so there's there's a part of me that really has grudging admiration. For the brilliance of the way the the results are, you know, even even when the the study is badly designed, sometimes you find that the data don't support the drug, or they show terrible safety profiles, or not better than placebo. And yet, even after the data is all in, the, the the writers and ghost writers find a way to downplay the harm and and make it seem, you know, just the language is is breathtaking, and it's. You know, diabolical brilliance.
1: Yeah, well first of all of course they'll hide sometimes they'll hide adverse events or they'll re recast say suicidal attempts as emotional ability or headaches. That's one of the things you saw in one of the trials. And they'll also poke through the data until they find something that makes the drug look good. Yeah, I mean listen from a commercial PR marketing point of view, it has been brilliant, absolutely. And and listen to them think about this as a country we spent 800 million dollars on psychiatric drugs in 1987 that was the market at that time now as a country we spend more than 40 billion dollars a year on psychiatric drugs that's a 50-fold increase from and and now there's a little bit more than 20 percent of americans take psychiatric drugs on a daily basis well from a commercial marketing pr point of view that is a story of extraordinary success so
0: you know, there's there's two levels at which I want to ask the last question. I want to thank you for your time. We've we've gone over a little bit, but which I
1: appreciate
0: is it. what what you know. So the, like, what do we do about it? And I want to ask the question first on behalf of individuals who are you know one in three of us is likely to uh, to voluntarily come across the, the mental health system and and be offered a drug. You know, not not to say nothing about the people who are. Um, forced into it by, by the judicial system. And, you know, so what, what, do we, what, do, what do individuals do? And then what's the prescription for, uh, you know, fixing the barrel or creating a new one?
1: Yeah, what are, what, so the first thing is, what are individuals to do? Well, I think it becomes a, a, what we really need is we have a society that's misinformed, right? So the question is, can individuals somehow make this science better? No. Can they help stir a discussion where we can really look at what the science is, is saying? And that some of that is going on now, I think, um, because, say for example, the chemical imbalance story has fallen apart and people are feeling betrayed, but it is falling apart and that's getting, that's getting known. So I think as individuals, well, the question is, can we, can we really become informed about the science? And remember, by the way, too, the principle about medicine is that it's supposed to be based on informed consent right so if if we don't you know if we're deluded we can all see that that's a problem Uh, in other words you go to these people and say instead of saying that the drugs are no good you can say well how about the information that is told about the drugs and once you can see that that is not had not been accurate that the chemical imbalance uh, story has been fraudulent That opens up a discussion because we can all say, like, well, that's not good if people are misled about the drugs and what they're doing. And then what do we do about this as a society? That's a bigger problem. We think the problem can be solved by just reducing the influence of pharmaceutical companies on psychiatry and on academic psychiatry and on the APA. The problem that is greater here is that This medical specialty really has three products in the marketplace. Diagnosis, in other words, it's diagnostic manual, research into quote the biology of these disorders, and then psychiatric drugs. So if and this is the guild that really has the responsibility in our society as a medical specialty to tell us what is true, so to speak. So how is this guild now going to say, after what they've been saying for 35 years about these are known brain diseases and our drugs are so safe and effective, how are they going to say that, like, you know, listen, biology is still unknown, our disorders aren't valid, Um, they've never been validated, our drugs really aren't very effective over the short term. Over the long term, um, it looks like they increased the chronicity of these disorders, so we really have to rethink their use. How can a guild say that and survive? And so I don't really, I think this is the big challenge, how psychiatry has this, occupies this place as a medical specialty. Um, so, and you know, in other words, it has a, 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 a place of authority in our society. So how can we question that authority? And, 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 and cause I don't think we can expect psychiatry to reform itself. And somehow, and I don't know how we do this, we just need to have power or authority over this domain of our lives in our society shared by more groups, groups including psychologists, social workers, philosophers, um, you know, just almost the society as a whole. And we somehow have to take this sort of governing power and authority from this medical specialty. I think that's the real prescription for reform.
0: Yeah, it uh, it kind of reminds me of, you know, say governments who uh, admitted they were wrong, you know, sort of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or, you know, post-World War II Germany, where you, you kind of need almost a revolution, to, you know new new blood to come in and say okay you know we've we've overstepped we've hurt people and and we need we need to come clean
1: we need a revolution in the sense that we need a very different paradigm of care which would begin with a different conception of what has been going that goes on with people and would in fact i think see that this whole this whole past 35 years with this disease model has been, you know, it's a false. It's been based on a false story. And it's done great harm to our society. So, yeah, I think we need to overthrow overthrow that, you know, that ruling authority in this domain of our lives. I, I agree.
0: Well, Robert Whitaker, thank you so much. I have to say, you know, bo- both books have been extremely impactful for me, Anatomy of an Epidemic and Psychiatry Under the Influence. But it's Psychiatry Under the Influence. It's really, it lays it out so clearly play by play from, from the, the brilliant deconstruction of the STAR-D trial to, you know, I just want to send this to all my doctor friends. Who, who still think that there's, there's an iota of, of truth or integrity in, in the marketing. So I'm so grateful for, for the work that you and uh, Lisa Cosgrove have done to, uh, to put psychiatry in the context of a, a natural human tendency toward guild and money corruption.
1: Well, thanks. That's what we try to do, and, I, and you know, hopefully it does illuminate the problem in a new way.
0: Well, thanks again for taking the time. Uh, uh, Thanks so much for having me, Howard. I really appreciate it. Be well. I hope you got a lot out of this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're skeptical, which is understandable, or if you'd like to learn more, I recommend that you check out the show notes for this episode, which you can find at plantyourself.com slash 139, the number 139, since this is episode 139. You'll find the website Mad in America, which is Robert's website about science, psychiatry, and community. You'll get links to his books. And also, very interesting, a, an online course taught by Irving Kirsch who is one of the researchers who proved that the antidepressants um, are no better than placebo and Irving Kirsch teaches this course it's essentially about a an hour-long video um, it's free to register and watch it you have to pay I think 15 bucks if you want to take a short quiz afterwards for CME credit I mention this also because I'm happy to announce that Irving Kirst is going to be the guest on an upcoming episode we recorded last week. It was a fascinating conversation, and and look for that coming in the next couple of months. If you like the podcast and you'd like to support it, several ways to do so. One is to become a patron on Patreon or just via PayPal. And this week I would like to thank uh, supporters Deborah Boyer and Michael Worobiec, who are both generously contributing to the health and success of the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Deborah and Michael. You can also leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and links for doing so are there on the website for every episode. i got a, a fancy new player with buttons underneath, and you can just click, go over to iTunes and leave your review. That really helps me get found by people who are searching for the general terms who may not necessarily know about this podcast. So thank you very much. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so on plantyourself.com on the sidebar. There are two buttons, uh, support with Patreon, and then donate, and both of those will work. In garden news, there is very little garden news except that the garden is covered under the, uh, the remains of the nor'easter, the uh, snowmageddon, that dumped a, a generous uh, one and three quarter inches of uh, actually more like ice on our landscape. So if you can hear the uh, fan going in the background, that's our uh, wood stove insert fan because I was not willing to brave the the traffic to go to the office today. Uh, So I'm sitting home and, you know, we haven't been able to really get out of the house for, for four days now and I'm looking at the shelf with all the sweet potatoes that we harvested in the late fall and with such gratitude that even though we can't leave the house, even though we can't go to the store, that we have nutrition there which grew in the belly of the earth and is meant to feed us and sustain us and keep us well until the earth can produce more bounty for us in the spring. So my wish for you is that you look around and see what in your life gives you support that comes from the earth and maybe give a little thought of gratitude and connection for whatever that is. And as always, until next time, be well, my friends.